Let's get to Luke chapter 8. We have now made our way as far as Luke 8. And let's pick it up in verse 4. Let's read our text together. And when the crowd was gathering and the people from town after town came to him, he said to them in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed. And he sowed, and some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and it grew up, and it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into the good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out and stated, He who has an ear, let him hear. And when his disciples had asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now, the parable is this, the seed is the word of God, and the ones along the path are those who have heard. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for the ones that fell among the thorns, they are those who hear But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, there are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast and honest and in a good heart, and they bear fruit with patience." As Jesus continued his public ministry throughout the area of Capernaum, where he uh, conducted the majority of his ministry until he made his way into the city of Jerusalem and therefore uh, conducted and ministered to the individuals there in the city, the crowds began to gather greatly about him and follow him from town to town to town. And though the number of the people was great, The hearts and the minds of the people were not all in the same place or on the same page towards the person of Jesus Christ. They were uh, found to be on a spectrum. For you had, to one side of the spectrum, you had the disciples who were committed to following Jesus as a disciple, allowing him to teach and show them by example what he has for them as his individuals learning under his discipleship. On the opposite end of the spectrum, you had the religious leaders that were continuing to harden their position of rejection uh, concerning the Messiah, uh, concerning Jesus specifically, that I may say, because they didn't believe that Jesus fulfilled the prophetic profile that they had created incorrectly based on Old Testament passages understand 
understood uh, in an incorrect manner, meaning that they had an idea of what Messiah was going to be. They had created a profile. They had set the mindset of the people to look for one uh, according to the profile. And one of the key components of their Messiah was the fact that he was going to, of course, release them from the oppression of the Roman uh, Empire. But then you had those in the middle of the two extremes that were still trying to determine who Jesus truly was. And so Jesus spoke in parables from this point forward in his public ministry for the purpose of concealing from those who have hardened their hearts and rejected him as Messiah, but revealing himself and the mysteries or the secrets of God to the disciples and allowing the parable themselves to draw the people in the interim portion of that spectrum closer to him. As their curiosity would gain ground, they would therefore seek him further and listen and try to discern that in which he is stating. The issue of Jesus speaking parables is one of the great uh, aspects of the Gospels themselves. Though the parables are beautiful and they each have significant meaning, that Jesus originally spoke with intent from that part of time on, today many incorrect understandings and incorrect doctrines have been based upon parable teaching. Warren Worsby once said that he would not teach a parable uh, until he first had taught the entire Word of God for 20 years, because the parables were one that could be misunderstood greatly. When it comes to the interpretation of parables, the error happens on one of two sides. Number one, people can underinterpret them, meaning they take words that they feel comfortable with, they assign meaning to those words, they run with the conclusion and then they draw from those words, and therefore they underinterpretate the passage due to the fact that they disqualify the other words that in their mind don't seem to fit as neatly as the words that they have selected. On the other hand, I've discovered that many also try to overinterpret the parables. And so they run into all different varying conclusions. They start assigning meaning to words by loosely connecting them uh, inappropriately through other passages of Scripture that, taken out of context, seem to fit, but yet when placed in their original content, context, they do not fit the parable uh, interpretation. So I'm so grateful that Jesus explains for us very clearly what many of the parables mean. And therefore, we can have confidence in the interpretation of them, especially this one. This is known as the parable of the sower. It's found in Matthew 13, Mark 4, and also here in Luke 8. Though it is called the parable of the sower, individuals have rightly said that it more classically could be called the parable of the soils. Jesus said very clearly that the understanding of this parable will give understanding to all the other parables in which he speaks. That is found in Matthew and also in Mark's gospel. Luke admits that here in our text. So it's crucial that you and I understand what Jesus means by this parable. 
And after reading the beginning of it, you may say, I don't have any real clue what he means by it. Well, you're in good company, neither did the disciples. And so Jesus then proceeds to give them the instruction and tell them clearly what he, intends to, what he intended to mean by the parable in which he spoke. Whenever we interpret Scripture, the very first place that we should always begin is the Bible interpreting the Bible. The Bible is the only inspired piece of literature that we have in this world. Many today are looking to interpret the Bible through higher criticism, not using the Bible as their initial reference, but using extra-biblical sources that happen to be written at the exact same period of time to give them further insight into properly interpreting the Bible. And though you can make a strong argument that that helps us define words that were used at that time, that's what a, 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 lectionary, or a lexicon is. It's a book that helps you define the words of the Bible based on the usage of that word in that culture. But an extra-biblical source does not carry the same weight as the inspired original source itself, that is, the Bible. And therefore, we must be very careful in the examination of extra-biblical documents, that we don't give more credence and weight to them than they ought to carry. Though I think they can be helpful and they can assist in our study, I I don't agree often that they give us insight to interpretation that the Bible itself doesn't give us originally. Does that make sense? So when it comes now to the parable, let us begin in verse 4. And we begin by seeing that a great crowd was now gathering, and people from town after town came to him, and he said to them in a parable. At the beginning of chapter 8, we see that in verse 1, soon after he went out through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and also some of the women also journeyed with him. Again, Luke is stating that as he progressed and as he proceeded in his ministry, the crowds did gather around him. The Greek for the great crowd is a great multitude of people uh, and a great expanse of people. We're talking thousands of people following him now from town to town to hear him, to see his miracles being wrought by his hand, uh, maybe to experience a feeding uh, of the 5,000 again and so forth. But they were curious and they wanted to know who he truly is. Is this the Messiah in whom they have been waiting for? But Jesus, knowing the hearts of the individuals that were following him, now proceeded in his wisdom to begin to teach them in parables. And this is one that is first recorded for us, again, because I believe Mark and Matthew want to give us the understanding that Jesus said it is necessary for us to understand this parable before we can proceed on in understanding the parables that preceded it. Or, I'm sorry, succeeded it. And we begin here in verse 5, And a sower went out to sow his seed. That is one who simply scatters seeds over an area of land for the purpose of planting. And he sowed, and some fell along the path, and was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on the rock, and and as it grew, it withered away because it had no moisture. 
And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it, and some fell into the good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And he said these things, and he called out, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. The parable is based on the analogy or the illustration that was common to each and every individual following him at that time. It's an agricultural illustration. It was to help them understand and to perceive the secrets of the kingdom of God. Not only had the religious leaders at that time misprofiled the coming of the Messiah, but they were also naive to the understanding of what the Messiah would do once he did come. We have writings from the scribes uh, of the days of, of Jesus that state very clearly that the scribes and the Pharisees that preceded them believed that there were going to be two messiahs coming because they couldn't reconcile the prophecy passages that had to do with their messiah suffering and they couldn't reconcile them with the other prophecies that had the messiah reigning in victory here on this earth from Jerusalem. So their conclusion incorrectly was, well, there must be two messiahs coming. They did not anticipate a first and second coming. Jesus, of course, suffering at his first coming and then victoriously arriving at his second, therefore fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament perfectly. But yet further, they didn't understand the mission of the Messiah once he got here. They truly, based on the Talmud specifically, the the writings of these uh, Jewish people, they had reduced his coming basically as a liberator. Not a liberator from sin, but a liberator from their uh, oppressive uh, tyrants that reigned over them, first Greek and then the Greeks, and then, of course, after that, the Romans. So Jesus now is trying to break through. He is hiding himself in this parable from those who have already determined to reject him. He's revealing himself to those who have already received him and understand him to be the Messiah. And he's drawing people through the parable itself to uh, draw them on their curiosity and their understanding uh, of who he may be and hopefully have them inquire on a deeper level after his ascension into heaven through the teaching of the disciples, which I believe was what happens, of course, after Pentecost. That That being said... He begins here and says there's a sower that went out to sow seed. None of the explanations classify who he is referring to. The vast majority believe, of course, it is referring to God or himself. But some believe that it could also be anyone who speaks the word of God. Now, Jesus actually is speaking this parable to the disciples, which is a key uh, to our understanding of it correctly. He is going to use this parable to encourage the disciples. He's going to use this parable to show the disciples what happens in the minds of the hearts of the recipients and when they receive the word of God. The seed, of course, being indicated in all of them being the word of God, falling upon four different types of soil 
which represents the hearts of the individual in whom is being spoken to and given the word of God. Only one out of the four brings forth fruit and allows for the maturity of the seed in its growth. Then Jesus says, very interestingly, he who has an ears to hear, let him hear. He's talking about an understanding. He's talking about hearing with spiritual ears, understanding what Jesus is trying to communicate through this parable. It is a term that is taken from the book of Ezekiel. When God tried to speak to the Israel, his people Israel, and they had hardened their hearts against him in many different ways, he spoke to them and said to them, listen, you have ears, but you cannot hear. You have eyes and you cannot see. It's because they were unwilling to do so. C.H. Spurgeon once said that the blindest individual is the person who is willfully blind, who chooses not to see. And as a result, these individuals closed themselves from the further revelation that God had for them in the book of Ezekiel. So he's, he's already appealing to the crowd and saying, there's some amongst you that are here today that have hardened your heart against me and therefore are refusing to receive anything further in what I have to say. But the disciples were confused undoubtedly by this parable. It is the first time Jesus approached them in such fashion. And in verse 9, we find that when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said to them. This is, this is crucial for our understanding of why Jesus used parables. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. He wanted his disciples not only to know who he was, and is, I should say, but also what he is doing. This word, secrets of God, mysteries of God, means that it is now being revealed. It is now being unfolded before them, the plans and the purposes of God. Now they are getting a broader understanding that God is not going to immediately set up his kingdom through Christ, but yet he is beginning its inauguration with the first coming of Christ, but will then allow for what is called the church to have a period of time here on this earth before returning and setting up and leading us into the millennial kingdom that he speaks of in Revelation chapter 20. But again, their, their thinking, the disciples' thinking was, that Jesus in their day, at that moment, was going to set up the kingdom at that time. That's why they were arguing, well, who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom? They even had, and this, is, this blows me away, there comes a point in time when you just can't get mom involved in your affairs any longer, okay? It's just wrong, you know? But do you know the disciples had their mom come to Jesus and say, Jesus, look, you know, if my boys could sit at each one of your sides, your right hand, I would be so grateful. You know, playing the mom card on Jesus, that is amazing to me. And yet he deterred that because, he, you know, he, he deflected that because now wasn't the time. 
In fact, when you get to Acts chapter 1, when they see the risen Christ and are interacting with the risen Christ, the very first question from the disciples is, are you going to set up your kingdom now? Well, wait a minute. Now's not the time. And of course, Jesus goes on, no, I want you to wait here in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit and the power may come upon you. The kingdom is not yet to come. It will be uh, fulfilled at his second coming. Though the inauguration, the beginning of it has occurred, as Jesus now is calling those out of the world to his kingdom, the kingdom of God, and he has now created a church to be his hands and body in this period of interim before his second coming. Now, as we continue on this, notice what he says. He wants his disciples to know and to understand the secrets or the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Now, the word, Daniel uses the same word in Aramaic. It's a word that talks about the yet-to-be-unfolded understanding in the, uh, of what God is still yet going to do. But he also goes on to say in the same verse, if you look there with me, But for others, they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Quoting Isaiah 6.9. If you go to Isaiah 6.9, you realize that once again, God, through the prophet Isaiah, is speaking to a hardened Israeli people. They had hardened their hearts against God. They were unwilling to receive from God any further. And as a result... God condemns them and hardens them further to the point, of course, then the Babylonian captivity comes into play. But that being said, Jesus quotes that same verse here, stating that amongst this crowd there are already those who have hardened their hearts against me. There are already those who have predetermined to reject anything that I have said, speaking specifically of the religious leaders. The religious leaders were the ones that God held accountable to know and to understand and to receive the the Messiah. When Jesus began to perceive that the religious leaders were in no way going to receive him as Messiah and the rejection started taking place, and you see that unfold through all the Gospels, it wasn't the people that Jesus were looking for, their exception and reception. He was looking to the religious leaders. He held them accountable to know the day of his visitation, to understand who he is and what he has come to do. But when they rejected, they began like Pharaoh did in Exodus to harden their heart against God. And so Jesus states that I have begun now to speak in these parables to further conceal who I am and what I am doing to those who have already purposely rejected me in their heart. In verse 11, he then goes on to explain the parable. This seed is the word of God. Now, there is great debate among scholars. Is this soteriology uh, in the sense that it is talking about salvation, or is it talking simply about the word of God and the coming of the kingdom of God? Well, I think that explanation, I think that question, I should say, is easily explained by what Jesus said himself. Notice with me. In verse 11, now, the parable is this, that the seed is the word of God, okay? And the first who hears it, the one along the path, are those who have heard, 
then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Well, I think it's clearly articulated for us that there is a soteriological aspect of salvation in this parable. When the sowers of seed, the farmers in that culture... Now, I grew up in the suburbs, and that's probably as far as farming as you can possibly get. I don't know anything about farming. If you want to know about malls, I can tell you about malls. If you want to know about, you know... uh, Congestive traffic, I can tell you all about congestive traffic. But when it comes to agriculture, I'll leave it to those who are farmers and who enjoy that. Uh, I have resolved myself that the best plant that I could ever own is plastic. And so to understand this culture, we have to go back and think about it in their mindset and look at it through their eyes. When a farmer would sow seed at this time in Israel's history... They would wait until the rainy season would come about their land. And they would allow the rain to soften the ground, and then they would plant even prior to plowing. And so they would generously scatter seed everywhere. And that seed would often fly in various directions, landing on various different types of soil within that area. Each piece of farming land was divided or sectioned off by pathways. These pathways were meant to be traveled. They were meant to be used instead of cutting through the field itself and destroying the crop. These pathways were meant to be used by individuals trying to proceed from one side of the farm to the other. And so the pathways became very hard. Because each and every day they would be trampled on by the feet of the individuals using them and they would become greatly impacted. Almost to the point, if you've ever been to Israel, sometimes the actual soil itself looks as hard as bedrock. And so when they scattered the seed, the seed would fly on top of these walkways and because of the hardness of these particular areas... The seed had no potential of sinking into the soil because even the rain did not loosen it. And therefore it could not begin to germinate and would just lay there on the surface. And so birds, of course, becoming the instinctive creatures that they are, you know, began to wait around and say, okay, well, sooner or later something's going to land on the walkway here and we're just going to easily pick it off. The other day I went camping, and that's a miracle in and of itself. And uh, I think it's one of the final prophecies before the return of Jesus Christ. But the campground was out in the middle of nowhere in Illinois, and it's just amazing once you get outside the suburbs and so forth, you know, in the middle of Illinois, the southern Illinois, and so forth, it's beautiful. But there's nothing out there. There's absolutely nothing out there. When it's nighttime, it's dark, I mean dark out there, you know. And there's these twinklings in the, in the sky that you see. I don't know what they're called because we can never see them around here. Um, but it's, it's, it's fascinating. But what I noticed that everywhere I was going, it seems like the birds were suicidal. I'm like, they must be the most depressed birds ever. They're constantly swooping in front of my car trying to grab something before... I got there, and I was like just waiting to pull over and to have all these birds sticking out of the grill of my car. 
they were trying to get the seed that was on the ground. They wanted it so badly that they didn't realize that I'm coming at 70 miles an hour and I'm not stopping if they want seed or not. Because they they instinctively understood that that's where they could find the seed and easily retrieve it. Now Jesus says some people's hearts are so hard that the word of God just lays on top of it and the devil just comes by and swoops it up and that's it. It never germinates, never takes root, never grows. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. The people of Israel hardened their hearts against God. It's a warning that we see in the New Testament of individuals hardening their hearts against God. But what causes an individual to harden their heart to that degree? I found three in the Bible. Number one, I saw that the first uh, manner in which an individual hardened their heart against God was the continuously, continuous rejection of anything of God. They wouldn't hear anything. They just continuously rejected it. They wouldn't let it seep into their mind or into their heart. No, they just rejected it. And that continuous rejection of the things of God led them to harden their hearts against God. And it's scary to me when you meet someone who is in that position where whatever you say to them about God, they just immediately reject. They don't understand that that rejection is, you know, placing another layer of of desensitization upon their heart and hardening their heart further to the things of God. I also noticed in the Bible that pride was a big component of hardening one's heart against God. People being prideful, therefore unwilling to humble themselves before God and receive that in which he has to say. But I also noticed that in several occasions, individuals hardened their heart against God because they had been subjected to overwhelming circumstances in their life. Those circumstances were often very difficult circumstances. Those circumstances were circumstances that would bring an individual to the brink, to the point of questioning the even existence of God in the world. I find that those three are still continuing today. That people harden their heart because they continuously reject the gospel of Jesus Christ and the things of God. I find that individuals also harden their heart simply due to the pride in which they carry unwilling to come before the Lord, humbly repenting of their sins and believing on Jesus Christ. I find that individuals who have gone through very difficult subjects have come to the conclusion, incorrectly I say, that God has done this to punish them in some way and to keep them from Him. Now, we don't often understand why God allows certain circumstances in our life. But we do understand the nature of God. We understand that He is good and that He is gracious. We also understand that man exercises evil based upon, their own, based upon his own free will. And yet it's hard to reconcile some of them and some of the occurrences. And I am being the first one to admit that I even myself have a hard time reconciling the goodness of God with the evil of man. I don't often understand it. But what I do understand is that Jesus Christ 
experienced all of the evil of man on my behalf. I understand that Jesus Christ paid a penalty for myself that I could not pay personally for myself. That he humbly subjected himself to his own creation and allowed that creation to slaughter him for the sins of the world. I don't understand all that God does. I don't understand why God allows certain things to occur. And many of you know my story that as a, a child I was adopted into the family that I grew up in. And my parents had significant problems in their marriage. My mom was an alcoholic for over 50 years, and when she drank, she became incredibly violent. My parents lied to judges to obtain my daughter, my sister and I, as children. I was told that the night of my, uh, night before my wedding. And my dad asked me, you know, will you forgive me? I was a believer at that time, and I asked for the grace from the Lord to forgive him. I was angry because it was a very difficult childhood to grow up in. I didn't understand it. I didn't understand why I had to contend with these things. I didn't understand when I realized that a gentleman named Bob Hope adopted children from the same place, the cradle, just a year earlier. I could have been Eric Hope, but I missed it by that much. That being said, I didn't understand what God was doing. I felt it was unfair. I felt that this was wrong. And how could a child be subjected to such things? And yet God didn't answer my prayer directly. But when I was 16 years old, he immediately intervened in my life and showed me the necessity of receiving him as my Lord and Savior. My life went in a completely different direction where I looked upon my parents in a completely different light. And by the grace of God, I was able to come to my mom and forgive her for what had taken place, even though she herself did not ask for that forgiveness. But in 2014, God gave me the greatest miracle that he ever could possibly give me. My mom came to saving faith in Jesus Christ and stopped drinking after 50 years. And then she died three years later. My dad now, who has been resistant to God ever since I had become a Christian, is now 91 years old. He has read through the Bible in the last three years seven times. And he has told me at Christmas that Jesus Christ is the only one that makes sense. I don't know why God allowed me to experience those things, but to see the salvation of my parents, I can trust God that he is a good God and that all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The temporal discomfort that I experienced in this world is going to be nothing to the eternal glory of knowing to see my parents in heaven for the rest of eternity. Sometimes we have to have a different perspective on things. But these individuals who had hardened their heart positioned themselves in a place where Satan could easily come across and devour the seed, and therefore the seed never gains traction. Jesus went on, then if we may, let's continue. In verse 12, I'm sorry, in verse 13, And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root, for they believe for a while, and in time of testing, 
they fall away. One of the most misleading aspects of the agricultural uh, typography of, of uh, geography of uh, Israel is the fact that you may see a field and it looks to be all dirt, but then all of a sudden you dig down two inches and there's solid bedrock. And this was a normal occurrence for the farmers of that day. A seed in that area could never take root. It might be able to start growing upward, but it can never grow downward. It never roots itself. It never begins to healthy, uh, plant itself in a healthy manner in those conditions. And Jesus states here clearly that it's due to a lack of moisture. C.H. Spurgeon believed that that moisture was referring to the Holy Spirit. And he likened these people to individuals who receive the gospel joyfully in an emotional state. They have an emotional moment with God. But there's no traction, there's no depth to the soil, there's only a bedrock underneath that initial layer, and the seed never really grows properly. And then when persecution and trial and trouble come around, the word there is in a light of examination, when to see if that, tree, that fruit is actually, I'm sorry, that plant is actually growing properly, they discover quickly that the plant isn't growing at all and dies immediately. There are many people who have professed to have received Jesus Christ through an emotional experience that they had at church or at some place or at some time in their life. Yet when the difficulties of the world come around, when the persecution comes around, when the trials and the troubles come around, that profession of faith has never taken root in their life. The word believe there is the same word that is used for, those, uh, for the example that James uses when he says even the demons believe in God, but yet they are not saved. And as a result, these individuals, when a time of examination were to come, some of your Bibles, if you have the Old King James or New King James, uses the word temptation, one of those periods in time will reveal that this plant is not properly planted and has not taken root and therefore they fall away <clears throat> i think emotionalism can be very dangerous in the church people often equate a spiritual moment with god with as the same as an emotional moment with god oh don't get me wrong there are times where i'm brought to tears by a song that is being played or a message that's being spoken I couldn't believe at how um, saddened I was to watch the uh, funeral service of Dr. Billy Graham. I just felt, oh, what an what icon that we're losing, you know. But that being said, let us not believe that emotionalism is a dictation for us to know and to understand and to discern God properly. Feelings change, don't they? You could be as happy as all get out and then watch old yeller and you're in the toilet, right? You're just like, oh, why did I ever subject myself to that? You know. Today we base everything upon feeling. And unfortunately, those feelings can be misleading. That's why I believe it's not feelings that God is seeking, it's faith based upon fact. But these individuals emotionally came, but when they were tested, they immediately fell away. Verse 14. 
And for those who fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life. The third one is an individual who hears, has an individual, a limited understanding of what is being said, but the cares of this world are more important. The pursuit of materialism and wealth is more important to them. The pleasures of this life won't allow them to sacrifice their temporal place of uh, comfort for the purpose of suffering for an eternal weight of glory. These are individuals that the world is too appealing to. They are unwilling to abandon the things of this world in the pursuit of following Christ. As Jesus says, one who follows me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow after me. Now as Christians, we know that we have responsibilities here in this world to fulfill. And those, insp- those responsibilities increase with the different demographics in which we fill. We have a job, we have responsibilities within that job. We have a family, we have responsibilities within that family. Paul brings this to our attention very clearly. No, these are not the cares that Jesus is speaking of. He's speaking of the cares of this world that would draw us away from God, thinking that this world has more to offer than God does for us. You know, to be friends with the world makes one an enmity with God, James says. We must be very careful because here the individual sees, understands, but yet the riches, the pleasures, and the cares of this world are more important. And therefore, their fruit does not mature. And as for that that is in good soil, they are those hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. I believe one who is truly saved will bear fruit in time. Sometimes that fruit is slow coming. Sometimes that fruit is not the watermelon that you were hoping for, but a little bit more along the lines of a grape. But yet the fruit is there. As a farmer would patiently wait, and often wait with uh, great anticipation, not knowing how much his crop would yield him that year. So we too must be patient and wait because often we don't see the fruit in our lives at the moment that we are looking for it, but often we discover that fruit in our lives when we turn back and look in hindsight over the years in which we have grown. We didn't see the work of God in our lives day by day by day because the microcosm of that moment was too small to see such a thing. But looking back over it, 30 years, I can say that I'm not the same young man that I was back then that I am today. And because God has worked in me over those years, now please get, no, I have a long way to go. Just ask my wife, long, long way to go. But I tell you, I've come a long way also. That's the patience in which he references here. Jesus says that one who hears the word of God and allows the word of God to have its proper place within their heart, that heart being in a good place, ready to receive, ready to nurture, ready to allow that plant, that seed to grow within them, will experience the fruit that that plant will produce, that seed, I should say, will 
produce. Now, one of the aspects about this parable that may not be clear to you on the surface, but I believe was clear to them at that time, was the fact that individuals could change. God approached those in the Old Testament who had hardened hearts, and he said, plow up the fallow ground that is within you. Things can change. Those who are shallow and simply emotional, Jesus said to them, no, place your full trust upon me. Let your faith and trust be upon me and who I am. Those who would be choked out by the cares of this world, Jesus said, abandon those things and follow me. Things can change in a person's life. That's why I don't believe anyone is too far from God. I don't know when God steps in like he did with Pharaoh and begins to harden his heart based upon the fact that Pharaoh hardened his heart in, uh, you know, previous to that. But if God could save someone like me, God can save anyone. And though I may see a hardened heart or I may see someone who is simply emotional with God and yet has no root, or I see someone who uh, may be uh, just you know, choked out by the cares of this world, it doesn't mean that God can't save them. That may be where they are at the moment. And that's why Jesus wished that, and hoped that these parables would draw people closer to him to think more deeply about the things in which he was saying, to allow them a time to meditate and to chew on those things and those teachings in which he was saying. Because I believe that things can change within a person's life. If I may, in just closing, let me read this to you. It's from Chuck Swindoll. Even more than describing the mixed progress of the gospel message, the parable of the sower compels the listener to ask, what kind of soil am I? How can I prepare my heart and my mind to be the right kind of soil? This parable invites action so that we will receive the word of God to full benefit. I once was at a dinner with Pastor Chuck Smith, and he said that one of his most important times in his personal life is the moments just before he opens the Word of God. As he was explaining to all of us, there were many of us at the table, and he didn't have me over to his house by myself. He'd probably think I'd steal the silverware. But um, that being said... He stated that, and the guys asked him what he meant by that. And Chuck said that, you know, approaching the Word of God, we often want to mentally prepare ourselves for it, but we don't prepare our hearts for it. So he takes a moment to pray before reading his personal devotions, to cultivate his heart, to be ready to receive that which God has for him. What do you do before you come to church on a Sunday morning? How do you prepare yourself? Do you get up at the very last minute, you know, decide if uh, you're interested in fellowship that day or not, and then decide to take a shower, uh, yes or no? 
then maybe eat something very quickly, jump in the car at the very last moment and try to get to church before the last song that Chris plays and right before the message so you get the gold star from the pastor for being there. I find that church is much more fruitful if I get up in the morning and that morning specifically spend some time with the Lord prior to coming to church. Praying and asking the Lord, Lord, what would you have for me today? Open my heart. Let me hear your word. Let me not think of how that applies to everyone else in the church and disqualify my own personal application of what's being taught. Help me to be receptive. Lord, not only allow me to be receptive, but also show me, Lord, how I may bless someone else in the church. How my role within the body could be a blessing to someone else in the church. Preparing your heart in that way. Can you imagine? how fruitful we would be as a church if all of us did that on Sunday mornings. Asking the Lord to cultivate our hearts and our minds. Taking the cares of the week that we have just absolutely swimming in our minds and in our hearts and just putting them on the side for a moment. And say, no, for this hour with the Lord, I'm just going to spend with Him and my brothers and sisters in Christ. I've got a lot of needs and issues myself, but how, what can I do to bless someone else? Can you imagine if we had people coming into the church with their hearts prepared, looking to love and to bless someone else? Can you imagine how healthy of a congregation we would be? It would be a great thing to see. I pray that you would cons- uh, consider doing that before Sundays, before Wednesdays, coming out and hearing the Word of God, preparing your heart for what God has to say. And as Jesus stated, he who has ears to hear, let him hear.